this is Franzi in Chicago, and I'm a big fan of Sean Caston, and you're listening to Two Broads Talking Politics. Check them out on Twitter at Two Broads Talk. Hey everyone, this is Kelly with Two Broads Talking Politics, and tonight I am here with Sean Caston, who is running for Congress in the Illinois 6th District. Hi, Sean. Hey, Kelly. How are you? I'm great, and I'm really excited to talk to you because this is the closest swing district to where I live. So (laughs) I've been talking to people all over the country, but this is actually the closest one to me, so I'm pretty excited about it. Why don't we start with just a little bit of background. Uh, who are you and what led you to this and why are you running for Congress? I, I think I'm, you know, the short version is like a lot of people. I was motivated by Trump, although there's sort of accidents of timing and geography in one's life that conspire to make other things possible. I spent seven years working as a biochemist, biochemical engineer, got really concerned about climate change. That led me to start up a couple companies that had missions to profitably reduce greenhouse gas emissions and did that for 16 years and had a lot of fun with that, would have still been doing it. But for a variety of reasons that were not all up in my control, we sold our company in September of 16 and and then Trump happened. And I suddenly found myself living in a district that went fairly solidly for Hillary Clinton, represented by someone who is, I think the political term is full-on Tea Party crazy. <laughs> and, and, I, and I couldn't quite figure out how, how are those two things compatible? And I'm, you know, I, I've, not, I've done a fair amount of policy work, but I've never done political work. And there's a whole set of interesting things that cause that to become possible. But the, the short answer to your story is that I had a number of people who I respected along the way who taught me why that was possible and suggested that the way to, the way to fix it is to have someone, someone like me running to, uh, running to stop it. And so here I find myself, and so far they've all been proven right. All right. And let's talk a little bit about the Illinois 6th District. I spend a lot of time looking at different districts, and the median income, at least, in the Illinois 6th is is a lot higher than in a lot of parts of the country that I look at. It's a district that's fairly close to the city of Chicago. As you noted, it went to Hillary Clinton fairly strongly, and yet has a Republican representing it. So can you talk a little bit about the district, what it looks like, and you know, if you have some insight into why there's that discrepancy between the the presidential vote and the congressional vote. So the district itself, I think, can be best thought of as a as a district that was reliably Republican in 1995. It's more affluent than your typical district. It's more educated than your typical district. It's whiter than your typical district. And it's the type of place that is socially conservative, kind of pro-market, pro-things that used to be thought of as sort of center-right values, but is very hostile to Trump because Trump ain't that. Mm -hmm. My own personal theory is that 2016 was the last election that you could run as a down-ballot Republican and not be asked whether or not you were a a Trumpy Republican. Mm -hmm. And so it's historically, you know, elected people who didn't have huge name ID, but had an R after their name. And it went so strongly for Hillary because it doesn't, it's not a district that has those kind of values, the Trump values, it is. 
I remember, in fact, shortly before the 2016 election, driving through Chicago suburbs and and seeing zero Trump signs. <laughs> there, there would still be signs for other Republicans, but nobody was putting up Trump signs. And I sensed then that there was sort of a, a discrepancy there. Yeah, without without question. The and and frankly, you know, you can see it. You know, that my opponent has voted. So the two statistics that I think are worth knowing about this district: there are only five districts in the country that went more strongly for Hillary and elected a Republican, and there are only nine representatives of Congress who have voted more consistently with Trump. Mm. So when I when I describe uh, my opponent as, as full on Tea Party crazy, that's actually a mathematically precise term. That's not just <laughs> <laughs> the. But he is absolutely not running on his voting record. He's he's running on trying to portray himself as a centrist who is bipartisan, who is um, concerned about the environment, which is basically me. <laughs> so it's encouraging, but it's not a place where you can run on a pro-Trump record, which I frankly find kind of reassuring because I don't I don't have to be, pretend to be anybody else than myself. So when I think of your opponent, the the words that come to mind are tax scam. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So he was involved in some way in the the, the recent tax legislation yes. that we're all calling the tax scam. Is that something that is popular or unpopular or mixed in your district? Hugely unpopular, and he bills himself as the architect of the tax bill. I'm I'm happy to let him take that credit. <laughs> I'm not sure how much role he played in that as opposed to the lobbyist, but that's I'm happy to bill, bill him that way. The district, and it's it's a peculiarity of certainly of this district, and I think it's probably true of others. It is wealthy enough that if folks here have an extra thousand dollars or so in their wallet, it's not really it doesn't have a huge impact on their lifestyle. But it's not so wealthy that people aren't really concerned about having an economy that's going to make sure that their their kids who are looking at college bills or who are living in their basement or their parents who are moving to fixed income are going to have the wealth to get them through. And so the the tax bill has become a hugely negative feature in the district because the small economic impact, positive or negative, is trivial. But the but two trillion of deficits and threats to cut Social Security and Medicare and do nothing about education affordability is really scary to a lot of folks in the district. And he's chosen to hitch his wagon to that. And on top of that, this is the um, the twelfth highest state and local property tax of all the congressional districts in the country. And Roscom actually initially voted to completely get rid of the state and property tax. And you know Susan Collins insisted on putting it back in in the Senate. But the Generally, the more Republican the towns are in the district, the higher their state and local taxes. So Hinsdale, which is in the district, has an average state and local property tax of $43,000. Those people are really unhappy about a $10,000 cap, and they historically have been pretty Republican. And now they're sitting there saying, you kind of sold me down the river. So as you're going around and talking to people, to individual people around the district, are you seeing this sort of thing reflected? Are they indicating, are there people who have historically voted Republican in congressional elections that are indicating that, in fact, they may very well vote Democratic this time? Overwhelmingly, yes. 
one of the sort of deepest pieces of wisdom I got was a guy who um, was at an event I was at a couple months ago who said, he said, I finally feel like you're talking to the phantoms. And I, and I said, what's a phantom? <laughs> and he said, he said, he said, I'm a phantom because everybody treats me as if I'm invisible. And as he clarified, he said, you know, he, he said something that I sort of feel, I feel sort of myself as well. But he said, the Republican Party has not spoken for me in 15 years. And you're the first person in the Democratic Party to speak to me. Hmm. And so I think there's this there's no question but that the demographics and the values of the district are moving slightly to the left, but the Republican Party is sprinting to the right. And so you've got all these people whose values haven't really changed, but are no longer finding people within the Republican Party who share those values. This has always been kind of a 55-45 Republican district. In the primary, the ballots polled went 55-45 the other way, and about 15% of the ballots polled were from people who had previously polled a Republican ballot. Hmm. So, you know, the blue wave is definitely a thing, but a lot of that energy, at least in this district, is being driven by by people who historically voted Republicans but are voted with the Republican Party but are now just fed up and saying my values are closer to the Democrats now. And so let's talk about some of the the issues and values that are ones that are sort of driving your campaign. So I assume that environmental issues, climate policy are are important to you. And so I'm wondering what what sorts of things you would like to see Congress doing? What sorts of things you would like to see? I mean, it would be nice if the EPA did anything positive, but <laughs> what what sorts of things we could and should be doing about climate change that is not being done right now? Sure. So uh, let me just start by making an observation, which is going to, I'm almost reluctant to say it because it sounds naive, but there are things, and I'm, I'm learning this, I mean, I'm a first-time candidate, so you know, take this with a grain of salt, but I'm finding that there are things which are considered exceptional in the political realm that are considered the bare minimum standard of performance in all other realms. And so the, you know, making decisions based on the facts in front of you, rather than the what's politically expedient, is somehow considered heroic in politics. And there is nothing that is deserving of a cookie for doing that. <laughs> but, and we all do that in our normal life. And then also making decisions where we say, I've got two competing interests. Can I find a win-win? That's not considered exceptional in normal life, but is considered heroic in politics. And so I, I mentioned that on the environment because my whole thing with the businesses that I that I set up and ran was that that carbon dioxide is this totally unique pollutant. Number one, it is massively scary for what is happening to our planet, and we're not doing enough to address it. But number two, it is the only pollutant where lowering the reduction of that pollution saves money every single time. That's because you can't release CO2 without burning fossil fuel and nobody gives away fossil fuel for free. That's totally different from, from soot, from acid rain pollutants, from carbon monoxide. All those require you to invest in things that are expensive to control. CO2, you save money by reducing. And so in a business context, we sort of took that insight to say, let's go out, let's lower CO2 emissions by lowering people's cost of energy. And and clean up the air while making energy cheaper and creating jobs and building new infrastructure. We built about 80 projects, a couple hundred million dollars, and we ran into a ton of policy barriers to doing more of that. 
because so much of the policy framework is framed around zero-sum rather than win-win solutions and making decisions that are politically expedient but factually incompetent. And so... You know, there's a whole bunch of things that I could go into ranging from, from inadvertent accidents of the Clean Air Act to some weird algebraic formulations, <laughs> but they're very, fix, they're, very, they're very fixable problems. But in order to fix them, you have to start by saying, let's make decisions based on facts and look for the win-win first. I guess that maybe leads into something that I've been thinking about, and that is this sort of whole push among Republicans to talk a lot about deregulation. And to have made sort of regulation into a, a dirty word almost. And the the way that obviously they're trying to speak to businesses when they do this, but I, I have trouble understanding why people <laughs> who are not businesses, who are not big businesses, are for deregulation. But I confess I have never either worked in politics or in business. So I guess I'm wondering sort of, is there a way that the government can do sort of the correct amount of regulating to help people to make people's lives better, but to not get in the way of business and innovation. So I'm wondering if you can sort of, that's a vague question, but if you can sort of talk about that challenge. So I think, and I, and I, and I should, maybe I should clarify from my prior comment that I, I, I actually think that government has a really critical role. And I certainly don't mean to suggest that government regulation is the problem with our mm -hmm. environmental rules. But, you know, one of the one of the lessons I learned from, you know, running some some clean energy advocacy organizations on the Hill, we used to joke that the one constituency that never lobbies Washington is a constituency for economic efficiency, because <laughs> truly, truly competitive markets are are really really hard you know if if you're you know if you if you pull out your old freshman economics textbook and you know you know what are the conditions where all those magical things of, of market economies work it means that you've got your com you've, your competitors are just as strong as you are and people have perfect information and so they know everything about your cost structure and there's no barriers to entry or exit and those businesses are terrible to be in they're really hard the consumer benefits but they're hard places. And so, you know, really letting markets work, I think from a regulatory framework requires a certain balance between, on the one hand, saying, let's make sure that we meet the, the public interest and consumer protection, which means, you know, injecting a lot of competition, while at the same time recognizing that the business community really doesn't want competition. Mm -hmm. And that's not a bad thing, right? So, you know, when I ran my business, we we signed up people to have 20-year energy contracts. And if we didn't have 20-year energy contracts with them, it would have been very hard for us to invest the capital that we might not get paid off for you know, five or six years. But that basically meant I was precluding them from fully participating in a competitive market, right? I'm not a bad person for doing that, but businesses do that all the time. It's not a black and white choice between regulation and deregulation. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a choice between what is the what is the social interest of how are the consumers best protected right if you're in a totally monopoly market like a utility you protect the consumers by setting rates if you're in a totally deregulated market like the market for avocados you protect the consumer by making sure that there's no one who has monopoly power you regulate in both cases it's just a different regulatory tool right but i think i think what the a lot of what gets billed as as deregulation in the in the public discourse 
is is really a recommendation for anarchy, right? And, and I and I mean that in the in the, like in the literal sense of the word. When we when we deregulated California power markets and Enron came in and blew things up and gamed the system, the problem was that we didn't replace price setting with antitrust enforcement. It just became a wild west scenario, and the entity with the biggest muscle won the day. That's that's not consumer protection. That's just anarchy. Geez, it would be nice to have people in Congress who who can have discourse around these things. <laughs> <laughs> well, give me till November. We'll make sure it happens. <laughs> the other issue I wanted to touch on, just because it's so much in the news right now, and because you mention it on your website, is immigration reform. Uh, mm-hmm. So obviously, immigration is just a a huge, huge topic right now. But I know that you you worked with the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. And so I'm wondering sort of what your ideas around immigration are. I think, you know, there's a lot of discourse right now sort of painting Democrats as wanting open borders or something. And, and obviously, I think that's a little bit unfair. But I'm wondering sort of what what you think Congress could be doing to to make the entire immigration system work better. Well, let me maybe first start with, it's easy to get really depressed about the current immigration conversation, but I, 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 think, I think let's at least lay out some cause for optimism that the things that have truly made our country great can be used to make it great again. And, and let's be honest, unless you're, a, unless you're an Iroquois, um, <laughs> the, you, are, you are descended from, from illegal immigrants. Right? <laughs> and, and, you know, we, we had this We've basically built this amazing country because we've had this not always perfectly applied, but this this awesome filter where we were the land of opportunity. We, for many place people in the world, the majority of the world, I would submit to you, remain the land of opportunity. Mm-hmm. Where if you want to have a better life, if you want you know some significantly more equal protection than you have at home, some significantly greater opportunity to put your entrepreneurial talents to work or to be not not discriminated against because of your you know your political views or your religion or your sexual preference or whatever else it is america's been a pretty great place and we have attracted people who put their talents to work here because we gave them a place and we have basically you know stolen brains and talent from the rest of the world to our great benefit and that's a great thing right that's something to celebrate you know uh Alexander Hamilton, you know, it's yeah. <laughs> all the way back. <laughs> what is horribly depressing in the current context is that we are basically having an immigration conversation with a kidnapper in every sense of the term. Mm-hmm. You know, what we're doing to kids at the border is kidnapping. The entire reason we're having a DACA conversation is because the the Republicans failed to get comprehensive immigration reform done, then failed to even get the fallback proposition that was the DREAM Act. And so Obama, thank you, Obama, at least did an executive order um, on DACA. Mm-hmm. And Trump took that executive order hostage for a stupid bloody wall, right? And so now we're having this conversation around how do you best negotiate with a kidnapper? And we can get really caught up with that, and we should be righteously angry and you know and tearful at what that's doing. But but I think if we back up and say what were we what were we trying to do ten years ago with comprehensive immigration reform, and what can we still do? And there were a lot of good ideas in that bill, 
you know, do we need to, you know, make sure that people we don't want to be in our country, we, we keep that? Of course we do. Like that's, you know, that's, I don't think anybody on the left or the right suggests that we should open up our borders to, you know, every, you know, every person who would like to do us harm. But let's be honest, the overwhelming majority of the people on the planet are fundamentally good people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and when we block everybody, we do vastly more harm than good to us. I think what our immigration policy has always done well, maybe not as much as it should, but has always done well, is we've always been, we've always prioritized family reunification and, and refugee resettlement and asylum seekers to give people a better life here. And, we've, and a lot of people have been the beneficiary of that. We could do more of it, witness you know, our paltry number of Syrian refugees, mm-hmm. but we've done that pretty well. What we have always done poorly is that we have always put far too high a priority on the country that people come from rather than the skills they bring with them. And, you know, speaking as an employer, it was maddening that if if we had two H-1B visas or possible H-1B visas who applied to us, one was from Canada and the other one was from Chad, it was vastly easier to get the visa for the person from Canada. Hmm. And it had nothing to do with skills and just with country of origin. And... You know, the only thing that's really changed over our history is which country we think we don't like, right? You know, we didn't like the Irish, then we didn't like the Italians, then we didn't like the Jews, then we didn't like the Chinese. We, we change who we don't like, but we don't, but we, there's always someone we disfavor. And so I think, I think we would be well served to completely get rid of country of origin as a basis for screening people, replace it with, you know, equal consideration of skills that the economy needs, but, but do that while still recognizing that family reunification, refugee resettlement, asylum seekers make us make a sort of that sort of model of the kind of values that we'd like the rest of the world to hold and bring pretty good people to our country. Yeah, I, I work in higher education. And so we, we certainly care a lot about bringing the best people to the country and making that easier and not harder. How have your international applications changed in the era of Trump? We haven't seen the effect yet because our admission cycle starts so early, but I would not be at all surprised if we see it in the next cycle. Certainly something that people are very mindful of that we could start to see it. I ask because I, I sit on the uh, like an advisory board for the my graduate school. It's graduate engineering school and it's predominantly international and we, we saw it two years in a row, 30% declines in international applicants when Trump came in. And it's just it's just frightening. The, the dean said he needed to start thinking about us as a safety school because the best students were deciding to go study in England or Canada or Germany or somewhere where they didn't they didn't have as many things to fear as they have in the Trump-led United States. Yeah, and among other things, it's hard to see how that's good for our economy if people start to go to school elsewhere. You know, exactly. it, it's bad for a lot of reasons. But even if all you care about is the economic impact, it's it's bad economically. Exactly. It's. I mean, it's one of the crazy things about, and it's why I said at the start that I feel like the Republican Party has sort of abandoned its principles. That if you are, if you are completely greedy and selfish, you should want us to be the country that steals the best talent from everywhere else in the world. Mm-hmm. You should want us to be the country that spends as little as possible on energy, and therefore, oh by the way, reduces CO two emissions. You should want us to be the country that has the lowest possible cost of health care. And the Republican Party doesn't stand for any of those things. And I could justify all those on selfish reasons, right? Selfish for the country, not selfish perhaps for the <laughs> few individuals <laughs> yeah, who are looking yeah. out for themselves. 
Yeah, and I'm, and I'm not. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not trying to be mean spirited about it. It's just that we're. If you're not looking for the win-win, too often you end up with lose-lose. Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about winning. So. <laughs> yes. uh, so. On the downside, your your opponent has a massive, massive war chest, but you've also raised quite a lot of money. And I get the sense that you have a, a really big volunteer army of people that are, are out and, and campaigning and, and working uh, on your campaign, canvassing and, and phone banking. Are you, is that sort of your strategy for not being able to compete with the, the dollar amounts is to compete at the volunteer level? Well, it, it, number one, let's not concede the dollar amounts in the first instance. Uh, undeniably, we have a massive amount of volunteer energy. We've got 2,700 people who are volunteering for us at this point. We've had 69,000 people who have contributed some amount of money to the campaign. And, you know, you know by contrast, you know, Roscombe has more than half of his money from, from corporate PACs and I've yet to meet someone who isn't paid to work for him. So we have huge advantages there. But even on the money side, the total amount, the only real reason that, that Roskam has any money advantage is because he didn't have to fight a primary. The, the amount of money mm-hmm. he he finished, he, he started after our primary. He started with $2.5 million. That was about the same amount as raised by all seven candidates who were running in the primary. And if you think about it, if somebody calls you and asks you to contribute to a uh, – a candidate in a seven-way primary, there's a six-seventh chance you picked the wrong horse. <laughs> so that so the fact that he raised the same amount as all seven candidates is a is a testament on on how unloved he is. Especially when you say that half of that came from corporate PACs, mm-hmm. we just give to incumbents, right? So really, he raised half as much. We have now with the extra. 800,000 re-raised in the last quarter. Roscoe raised 940 in the last quarter. So we're basically doing, you know, just about neck and neck right now. And again, I'm not getting corporate PAC money. We've now raised more than anybody who's ever challenged him by by a significant margin. So I'm pretty confident that we will be competitive on the money, but I have to catch up with the fact that he started with a cash advantage because he didn't have a primary. You know, I, I had to spend a million bucks in the primary. But those, you know, to some degree... You know, you you need Chicago's an expensive media market, and you need money to be on TV to introduce yourself to people. We'll have plenty of money for that. Beyond that, if you are a person who 81% of the electorate says if the election were held today would not vote for you, which is where Roskin is at. If you're a person who is less popular than Donald Trump in a district where Donald Trump is only 37% popular, you need a ton of money to rebrand yourself as someone other than who you are. And so that's what Roskam is raising money for, and that's how he's spending money. Um, and it makes me it makes me rather skeptical about the character of someone who will spend two years voting one way and then not have the courage to stand up and acknowledge it. Mm-hmm. But it, it also means that he has to raise a lot more money than I do to accomplish the same end. All right. Well, is there anything else that you want to make sure our listeners know about you or your district? You know, I, I, I guess just if folks um, if folks want to get involved or want to reach out, um, the website is castenforcongress.com, C-A-S-T-E-N-F-O-R-Congress.com. And 
And then the last thing is just to encourage, you know, people all around the country, whether in this race or others, you know, or, or looking at, you know, you know, up ballot, down ballot races. We as a country remain the country that overwhelmingly voted in favor of Hillary Clinton. We are we are better than we think we are, but we're not as good as we thought we were the day after we elected a black president for the first time. So don't lose faith, but but stay committed to all those races because to extinguish Trumpism, it's not enough to win the House and win the Senate. We need to win by massive margins so that there are are Republicans of character who feel comfortable standing up and opposing the the sort of toxicity that Trump has brought into the party. Because the thing that scares me more than anything else right now is not that there are not Republicans of character, but that those Republicans of character have three choices. They can either change parties, stand up and scream that this is inappropriate or quit. And I have yet to identify any Republican who has done anything other than quit. Mm -hmm. And for us to empower Republicans to take one of those first two doors, we have to completely demolish them up and down the ballot, the cycle, so that people say you actually cannot win anymore on Trumpism. So we will put on our website links to your website and your social media. People can go to your website and click on the blue volunteer button or the red donate button or both. I know a lot of Chicagoans who are like, what can I do? What can I do? I live in a blue place. Well, you can drive out to the suburbs. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to talk to you, Kelly. Yeah, you too. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Two Broads Talking Politics. Our theme song is called Are You Listening? off the album Elephant Shaped Trees by the band Imunari. And we're using it with express permission of the band. Our logo and all original artwork is by Matthew Wefflin and is done expressly for Two Broads Talking Politics. We can be found on our website at twobroadstalkingpolitics.com. You can reach us by email at twobroadstalkingpolitics at gmail.com, on Twitter at twobroadstalk, on Facebook and Instagram, and you can support us on patreon.com. You can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, and anywhere podcasts are found. If you are interested in advertising on Two Broads Talking Politics, please email us at twobroadstalkingpolitics at gmail.com.